Section 10 of The Ring and the Book, An Interpretation by Francis Bickford Hornbrook This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Juris Doctor Johannes Baptista Botinius When we turn from the speech for the defence to that of the prosecution, we find the same line of subtle, ingenious argumentation running through it. It is based upon an abstract principle which is twisted now this way and now that. It suits the purpose of Bertinius, when he is preparing the speech he intends to deliver in court, to speak in high praise of Pompilia. A great theme, may my strength be adequate, for, paint Pompilia, dares my feebleness? How did I, unaware, engage so much, find myself undertaking to produce a faultless nature in a flawless form. What's here? Oh, turn aside, nor dare the blaze of such a crown, such constellation, say, as jewels here thy front, humanity. First, infancy, pellucid as a pearl, then childhood, stone which, dewdrop at the first, an old conjecture, sucks, by dint of gaze, blue from the sky, and turns to sapphire, so. Yet both these gems, eclipsed by, last and best, womanliness and wifehood opaline, its milk-white pallor, chastity, suffused with here and there a tint and hint of flame. Desire, the lapidary loves to find. Such jewels bind conspicuously thy brow, Pompilia, infant, child, maid, woman, wife, crown the ideal in our earth at last. What should a faculty like mine do here? Close eyes, or else the rashlier hurry hand. He describes Pompilia's life, from her birth to her marriage, and he contends that Guido did not forbear, as he might have done, with the frolicsome girl who had become his wife that he pressed his right as a husband too far. It was very unwise, if Pompilian plaint wrought but to aggravate Guidonian ire. He thinks he ought to have borne with her all the more because the parents, who were the source of all his troubles, had left his home. He had no cause to make the daily life of Pompilia intolerable by his jealousy, but he is unreasonable. Enough! Prepare! Such loons announced for downright lunacy, in sanit homo, threat succeeds to threat, and blow redoubles blow, his wife the block. But if a block, shall not she jar the hand that buffets her? The injurious idle stone rebounds and hits the head of him who flung. Causeless rage breeds i' the wife now, rageful cause. Tyranny wakes rebellion from its sleep. Rebellion, say I? Rather, self-defence. Laudable wish to live and see good days pricks our Pompilia now to fly the fool by any means, at any price. Nay, more, nay, most of all, in the very interest of the fool that, baffled of his blind desire at any price, were truliest victor so. Shall he effect his crime and lose his soul? No, dictates duty to a loving wife, 
far better than the unconsummate blow adroitly balked by her should back again correctively admonish his own pate to achieve a good end all efficacious means are allowable now urges Martinius, beauty was all that pompilia had therefore to use it was praiseworthy if she needed someone to serve her what better could she offer to secure him than her love because permit the end permit therewith means to the end all the rest of his speech is a variation upon this theme by ingenious use of it every suspicious circumstance is allowed to be fact and then justified he cites the example of ulysses and venus to excuse pompilia's approaches to caponsacchi and her deceitful wiles what does it matter if she does hold nocturnal meetings with him does every hazel sheath disclose a nut he were a molinist who dared maintain that midnight meetings in a screened alcove must argue folly in a matron to say so would be to cast a slur on judith all these things it is true have been proved false there were no visits to pompilia's house by caponsacchi and there were no nocturnal meetings but for the sake of his argument he allows them to stand as true pompilia is charged with taking money for the expenses of her journey but permit the end permit the means to the end he will allow the truth of the coachman's evidence that the journey was one long embrace what of that admit the end and you admit the means say she kissed him say he kissed her again such osculation was a potent means a very efficacious help no doubt such with a third part of her nectar did venus imbue why should pompilia fling the poet's declaration in his teeth pause to employ what since it had success and kept the priest her servant to the end we must presume of energy enough know which superfluous so permissible Bartinius justifies pompilia's lie as he allows it to be called about her inability to write as a praiseworthy attempt to repair a wrong hastily done and construes her assertion that she had never learned to write as an act of bravery and he cries oh splendidly mendacious but his opponent will urge that the means used were vile not so since no other means were at hand governor and archbishop had failed her in her hour of need everyone waited for a miracle to save her while caponsacchi acted in illustration of this he cites an incident from the jewish sefer todoth yeshu it happened once begins this foolish jew pretending to write christian history that three held greatest best and worst of men peter and john and judas spent a day in toil and travel through the countryside on some sufficient business i suspect suppression of some molinism i the bud footsore and hungry dropping with fatigue they reached by nightfall a poor lonely grange hostel or inn so knocked and entered there your pleasure great ones shelter rest and food for shelter there was one bare room above for rest therein three beds of bundled straw for food one wretched starveling fowl no more 
meat for one mouth, but mockery for three. You have my utmost. How should supper serve? Peter broke silence. To the spit with fowl, and while tis cooking, sleep, since beds there be, and so far, satisfaction of a want. Sleep we an hour, awake at supper-time. Then each of us narrate the dream he had, and he whose dream shall prove the happiest, point clearliest out the dreamer, as ordained beyond his fellows to receive the fowl, him let our shares be cheerful tribute to, his the entire meal. May it do him good. Who could dispute so plain a consequence? So said, so done. Each hurried to his straw, slept his hour's sleep, and dreamed his dream, and woke. I, commenced John, dreamed that I gained the prize we all aspire to. The proud place was mine, throughout the earth, and to the end of time. I was the loved disciple, mine the meal. But I, proceeded Peter, dreamed, a word gave me the headship of our company, made me the vicar and vicegerent, gave the keys of heaven and hell into my hand, and all the earth dominion. Mine the meal. While I, submitted in soft undertone, the Iscariot, sense of his unworthiness turning each eye up to the inmost white, with long-drawn sigh, yet letting both lips smack, I have had just the pitifullest dream that ever proved man meanest of his mates, and born foot-washer and foot-wiper, nay, foot-kisser to each comrade of you all. I dreamed, I dreamed, and in that mimic dream, impalpable to dream as dream to fact, methought I meanly chose to sleep no wink, but wait until I heard my brethren snore, then stole from couch, slipped noiseless o'er the planks, slid downstairs, furtively approached the hearth, found the fowl duly brown, both back and breast, hissing in harmony with the cricket's chirp, grilled to a point, said no grace but fell to, nor finished till a skeleton lay bare. In penitence for which ignoble dream, lo, I renounce my portion cheerfully. Fie on the flesh! Be mine the ethereal gust, and yours the sublunary sustenance. See that whate'er be left ye give the poor. Down the two scuttled, one on other's heel, stung by a fell surmise, and found, alack, a goodly savour, both the drumstick bones, and that which henceforth took the appropriate name of the merry thought, in memory of the fact that to keep wide awake is man's best dream. Let others shriek, Oh, what refined expedients did we dream proved us the only fit to help the fair? He cried, A carriage waits, jump in with me. Bertinius continues, Guido might have been content with the decision of the court, which really gave him what he ought to have most desired, the justification of his wife. After this vindication of her spotlessness, he should have been ready to welcome her back to his home, and, by so doing, prevent the possible visits of Caponsacchi to the home of her parents, where she was still residing. The birth of a son should have inclined his heart to peace with the mother, and have led him to welcome the little one who might be near the heart of both his parents. 
instead of producing that effect, it vexes him all the more. The perverse Guido doubts his eyes, distrusts assurance, lets the devil drive. But, to the last, Pompilia used the right means to the permissible end, and, by a full confession, saved her soul. It then occurs to Bottinius that if this confession is true, it really leaves him nothing to excuse, reason away, or show his skill about. This result he seeks to evade by a resort to technical devices. The confession, he acknowledges, is not to be believed. Still, Pompilia was justifiable in using her dying words to make it easier for the priest Caponsacchi. If that plea will not do, then he will maintain that Pompilia confessed before she talked, and so the sacrament obliterates the sin of falsehood. After another legal quibble, Bottinius closes his argument in a way that indicates his perfect satisfaction with it. Thus, Law's son, have I bestowed my filial help, and thus I end, tenax proposito. Point to point, as I purposed, have I drawn Pompilia, and implied as terribly Guido. So, gazing, let the world crown law, able once more, despite my impotence, and helped by the acumen of the court, to eliminate, display, make triumph truth. What other prize than truth were worth the pains? There's my oration. Much exceeds in length that famed panegyric of Isocrates. They say it took him fifteen years to pen. But all those ancients could say anything. He put in just what rushed into his head, while I shall have to prune and pare and print. This comes of being born in modern times with priests for auditory. Still, it pays. Potinius does not discover himself to us in so good a light as his opponent. In mental ability he is, no doubt, far superior to Archangelus. He has great oratorical powers, and nobody knows it better than he. He does not like the custom of presenting pleas in writing. Had I God's leave, how I would alter things. If I might read instead of print my speech, I, an enlivened speech with many a flower, refuses obstinate to blow in print, as wildings planted in a prim parterre. This scurvy room were turned an immense hall, opposite, fifty judges in a row, this side, and that of me, for audience, Rome. And where yon window is, the Pope should hide, watch, curtained, but peep visibly enough. A buzz of expectation. Through the crowd, jingling his chain and stumping with his staff, up comes an usher, louts him low. The court requires the allocution of the fisc. I rise, I bend, I look about me, pause o'er the hushed multitude. I count. One, two. He has some poetic feeling and a command of glittering phrases which, to some, may appear to have something substantial in them. He takes great pleasure in his work and has no doubt of its excellence. When he has finished his speech, he is satisfied that it is a masterpiece, something far more difficult to achieve than any that classic orators have handed down. It pays, and he is content. He cares more for his speech and his own ingenuity than he cares for his client. 
In reading the argument of Archangelus for Guido, we feel that he has said about all he could say for him. He employed all the technicalities of pleading because he could do no more. But Bottinius has a client whose confession makes her a martyr and saint. He has no proof that she is not all that she appears to be, and yet he is so possessed with the desire to display his ingenuity that he sets Pompilia's confession aside and defends her as if everything urged against her were true. He has no faith in human nature. He does not know purity and innocence when he sees them. Such a man may do well in defence of a scoundrel, because he can understand him, but innocence puzzles and annoys him. To deceive such a man, one needs only to tell him the truth. His defence of Pompilia is a judgment on his moral obtuseness and a revelation of the inherent nastiness of his nature. For Pompilia to be acquitted on the grounds which he presents would have been to give her legal justification at the expense of moral condemnation. End of chapter 10